I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, where we envision bottom-up, human-centered answers to the challenges imposed by the operating systems of top-down control. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, a celebration of the quirky ambiguity that keeps people from ever becoming predictable, and where anomalous behavior is the new opposition. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Mika Sifri, co-founder of Civic Hall, and the Personal Democracy Forum. You can organize outside of an existing power system, create new power, and change the system. That's where cultural work, where developing new forms of how people do things with each other, often overwhelms the existing power. Mika is going to tell us how media and technology can still help us to revive civic engagement and broader participation in the public sphere. It's time to intervene on behalf of people I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Are you? We do have some new members supporting this effort to restore some consciousness in the continuum. The microphone I'm speaking into right now was made possible by generous donations from Ryan from Salem, Massachusetts, who single-handedly doubled our cash on hand. Uh, Soren Lindgren, whose super generous contribution came on a day when I was feeling so down about so much. It just turned everything around. Uh, Jesse Baum and Chris Kane, who became sustaining members of Team Human by signing up for monthly contributions. And of course, Suzanne Sloman and everyone at Green Rabbit Bread up in Bernie Sanders country. You too can help keep us going, both financially and motivationally by visiting teamhuman.fm and becoming participating members of the team. We're a project of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College, which means your donations are tax-deductible. I've been thinking a lot about preconceptions lately. Just 
things that people um, accept as given circumstances of existence, really, when they're actually uh, totally constructed uh, synthetic considerations. For example, this belief, <laughs> and that's really what I have to call it, this belief that we all need cars in order to get to work. Yeah, I get it. We need cars in order to get to work. But why do we need cars in order to get to work? Because that's the nature of work or that's the nature of jobs? No, we need cars to get to work because we live so far in most cases from where we work that we need to get there. <laughs> and there's not good public transportation where we are. Maybe there was at some time, but it's not there now, or it's going to take two, three, four hours to get to work using a system of buses and, and uh, other public transportation. So you need to get a car. And then once you have a car, if you're an average American, you spend more than one day a week of your work time earning money simply to pay for that car. So how did that happen? How did we get there? You, know, you need a car to get to work, so you need a job to pay for the car so that you can get to work. But the landscape in which we live doesn't have to require a car to get to work. If you lived in Paris, for example, most people, they walk home for lunch. That's how close they live to where they work. I visited my uh, publisher, my editor in Paris, and she said, oh, let's go out for lunch. And we walked and we walked to her house and she made me a sandwich and then she went back to work. I mean, what is that? That's so foreign to most of us. And it's because our landscape was reconfigured to require us to need a car. And this was back when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. And all of these guys were coming back from World War II, all these veterans. And the president and his anthropologists and staff psychologists were concerned about these traumatized World War II veterans coming back and needing jobs and making trouble and forming gangs. These were guys who knew how to use weapons. They were deeply concerned about what was going to happen. So they embarked on a program of social control, meaning well. They, they built a landscape based on an economic model that promoted social control. They talked to their psychologists, they talked to the Levitt brothers, and they built this place, of one of the first ones on Long Island, called Levittown. Now, Levittown is a suburban tract home spread where each home is a specified distance from each other home. They are expandable. They have a lawn that requires maintenance. There's no public gathering spaces in Levittown. It's a town that was really designed to promote a very particular set of relationships between people, one another, their mortgages, and their finances. What they said at the time was that a man with a mortgage is not going to challenge his work environment. He needs to hang on to his job in order to pay his mortgage. And he wants to pay his mortgage so that in 10, 20, 30 years, he will own his house that he got, uh, not given to him, but that was provided to him at a discount by the GI Bill. 
that was for soldiers coming home. But the landscape itself then just looks like the real world, that these are just houses and they happen to be here. And this is how they're uh, laid out in order to make for a happy life for people. But that's not all it is. What it also is, is a carefully planned model to keep people working, to keep people's eyes on the prize, to keep people forever one step away from a larger house or an expansion or a modification or more trees on their lawn. And more importantly, from engaging with one another. Now, everyone who lives in a place like Levittown needs a car. They need a car to get into the city or to get out to work or even just to get from their house over to the train station so they can then take the, the LIRR back into, uh, into Manhattan. And that, of course, works really well for General Motors. Now, General Motors, back when it was a really powerful company, they had their their CEO became the Secretary of Defense. It's funny we blame Trump for putting in cronies in uh, uh, important positions and cabinet positions in Washington. This is a long tradition. So the uh, the CEO of of General Motors became the Secretary of Defense so that he could order that the highways be built. The American highways were built uh, ostensibly. They were built so that we could move missiles around. We could defend ourselves in a nuclear war against Russia. But the real object was to use public funds to create roads that would convey private vehicles. So they slowly dismantled the streetcars and buses and built up the suburbs and built big highways with public money so that people would need cars. That was the object of the game. So that people would need General Motors and, of course, other vehicles in order to work. So the rules of life that we accept as given circumstances are entirely invented. I'm not here to attack or to blame the people who did this. They meant well, for the most part, you know, the more cars that are sold, the more jobs there are for more Americans, which is better for the economy. They didn't know from pollution at that time. They didn't know about resource extraction or uh, automation of jobs. They were just looking, let's get everybody employed, making stuff for one another, and let's create a lifestyle in America that will require more and more of these products. So the rules of life that we accept as given circumstances are actually invented. And they're not even ill-intended, but in the long run, if we forget that we're the ones who made them, they end up reversing on us. Particularly when they become so far embedded in our way of life that we think of them as life itself. And a majority of our our cultural institutions, whether they're money or nation state or social contracts, they are all constructions. They were invented by people and they're enforced by people. And the important thing, the reason why we have to remember this plasticity, this inventedness, is because people can also change them. That's when Team Human organizes. That's when Team Human takes to the streets, turns to electoral politics or even direct action. Team Human, by definition, takes matters into our own hands. So join us. 
This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps, coming to you alive from the basement media squat at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. This interview, however, took place on location in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, where both Mika Sifri and I live. If you hear some birds in the background, think of them as nature. They are a pre-existing condition. Mika, it's an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. And as a member of a fellow member of Team Human, you're actually one of the one of the friends and mentors who actually who helped me realize the importance of not just sitting here writing my uh-huh. fun little books, but finding engaging. Engaging. Exactly. Right. And right. how solidarity is the mm-hmm. without that there's nothing. Yeah, though books are good. <laughs> books are a good still a really good way to get it. An idea or, or three into people's heads. Um, right. And you you've know. done a few yourself. Yeah. I guess first I'm interested in how how you went from, you know, your work at, at The Nation and uh, writing, mm-hmm. how you then moved into this uh, community organizing role. I mean, what was yeah. there a, a light that went off at well, some point? Well, first of all, I mean, I <laughs> my, my earliest uh, entry point into politics is from being part of a community, you know, as a kid. I went to one of those so-called socialist summer camps, Camp Shomriya, which actually has as its slogan, or at least at the time, was kibbutz in the Catskills. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so I lived an experience of cooperative social democracy, okay, as, as a teenager, and I started to learn about organizing then because, you know, the movement... We called it a movement, right, right, that we were part of, was trying to grow, was trying to, in that case, convince more of our fellow Jews to live up to their, you know, our rich moral tradition and, you know, take action imbued in an understanding of, you know, why Jews are persecuted, but we are part of a larger, you know, co- continuum of persecution and oppression and fighting against that. So I feel like my, you know, I, I got to the nation because I had been um, first brought up in understanding that another world was possible, even if it was just a kibbutz in the Catskills, mm-hmm. it made me into more of a critical thinker. And certainly I, I, you know, tried to hone that a bit more as a writer. But I think that there's a kind of engagement with the world that some of our best writers bring, that you're not sitting apart from it, but that you're, you're pulled in and involved when you see causes that, that matter, that, you know, life is too short to stay apart mm-hmm. from that. So I've, I've always thought that there was no such thing as objectivity, that you couldn't be uh, separate from the, the story that you were trying to cover, if you will, right? Like you, you, sh- you should be factual, but you cannot claim to be distanced. And, right. And, we're and, all embedded reporters. Right. We're not on some neutral, level. Right? right? Like neutrality is a position, a fake position. So, so I've always practiced that and thought about, you know, journalism and writing as just a way to organize people. Fast forward to, you know, the dawn of the Internet, you know, I I had gotten tired, I think, without knowing it, with some of the the sort of grooves and deeply ingrained problems that the older legacy progressive community, such as it was, as I moved into it in the 80s and 90s and through it. And when the Internet came along, what was fascinating to me were a couple of things. The first was 
that it was starting to dissolve the gatekeepers and the authorities, right? Like that right. it was opening up space for people to rise, not because of who they knew, right? But because of what they had to say. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that was exciting. The second was discovering the open source developer community, which I, I did not understand the language. You know, I, I, don't, I can't code to save my life. But looking at the people who were developing things like Linux... And watching how they worked, which was way more collaborative and meritocratic to a degree than the so-called progressive community, which was, in many cases, people who were very territorial and operating from a a position of scarcity, you know, where I have to fend off my competitors rather than figure out how to embrace and cooperate and work with each other. So I saw that way of working open source. Maybe I idealized it a little bit too much. But I imagined that that could hit politics. And I know you wrote a book Mm -hmm. about open source politics. I wrote a piece for The Nation back in 2004, which was drawn from watching things like Howard Dean and other new political movements basically explode the, the concept of participation because you didn't need permission. You could just start things. You could form your own meetup. You could start a blog. Um, you could raise money for a candidate. You didn't need permission to do any of those things the internet made it all possible the open internet right it does feel though that that while the internet makes all sorts of new politics possible it hasn't yet quite been applied to democracy itself to civic participation well the the truth is that it is being applied to those things, but not in a way that um, you you or I maybe are, are designing for you know, the community that I fell into helping organize was the community of people who were interested in hacking on politics. So, you know, techies interested in applying their their way of thinking and working to the political arena and political hacks, if you will, who were like, gee, this tech thing maybe can make us more powerful or help us route around old power systems. But we were too idealistic. I mean, I think what mm. we didn't see clearly enough was that the early adopters who were indeed routing around some old entrenched systems and undermining some powerful figures, you know, Dan Rather, Trent Lott, people who, you know, lost power because of swarms of bloggers exposing their foibles. What we didn't realize was that the big power structures were just slower moving. They weren't adopting the new tech as quickly. So, yes, early advantage to the early movers. But they were adapting, too, and they have adapted and indeed developed systems of surveillance and systems of manipulation and, you know, channeling the the avenues through which information moves. We didn't understand until late, I think, how much Facebook, for example, was a threat to the open Internet. I mean, now, you know, you talk to almost anybody who's doing political organizing today and they're all using Facebook because they have to. Right. It's as if the the. It feels as if if you make a website, that's often the walled garden of old internet HTTP. And if you want to reach the world, you have an Instagram and a Facebook. Yeah. And the the crazy thing is, in some ways, Facebook is accelerating the empowerment of outsiders. So to give you just one salient example, you know, the people who started the Women's March literally launched with just Facebook pages that mushroomed incredibly fast. 
you know, I remember eight years ago when somebody started a, a page on Facebook called Million Strong for Barack Obama, and the idea was to demonstrate that he had a real base by eventually getting a million likes, and it took them about nine or ten months, if I remember correctly. Pantsuit Nation, which was a secret, you know, pro-Hillary group, I think, you know, hit a million users overnight. Right. Um, I mean, yes, these things were striking in hot political moments, but, you know, the ubiquity of people being connected through Facebook. I mean, there are, there is a minority, including my wife, and, and I can think of a actually a bunch of other people who are not on Facebook and who are happy that they're not on it. And, you know, to the degree that we would like to see a healthier democracy, we need more people deciding not to make that the center of where they do everything. Uh, the problem is, is, is path dependence, right? right. You have to be there because everybody else is there, and so you can't leave because no one else. You know, I'm a little bit more optimistic that that will begin to to fade. But you know, obviously, they have a lot of money and power and and desire to hold on to people. And it's so hard to understand the landscape, though, because on the one hand, you're saying, okay, the powers that be kind of adjusted, reacted. We got Palantir and surveillance right. and all, but then the the most forward thinking advanced application of that was by Donald Trump, who's in some sense a total outsider to the established system. Yeah, well, there, you got to separate tech. Tech is not everything. You know, there's a tendency to talk about politics as if the tech was the whole the, right. the big change element. I mean, the existing media ecosystem is falling apart for in part because of its own its own internal reasons. The economics of the news business are being changed radically. Right. They've fallen um, into that attention economy trap. Right. So that has weakened their ability to gatekeep and, and kind of keep the norms that, you know, in the past, for example, I've always seen it this way. Back in my early days before the internet, you know, when I was at The Nation magazine, we saw the political playing field in the United States as artificially... Uh, basically happening between the 40-yard lines on the, on a football field, right. okay? You know, you were allowed to go a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, frankly, more to the right because of the power of money, pushing things to the right. Mm -hmm. And there was sort of a zone of tolerated dissent. And then there were the things that were just like too far out there. And there, uh, the John Birch Society, for example, on the far right, which had been pushed and marginalized, you know, pushed out of the right-wing mainstream by Buckley, when he purged them out of National Review, and on the left, you know, basically nothing breathing of socialism or communism. It was like George McGovern was like the last. That was as far yeah. left as you could yeah. go. You know, Chomsky being the sort of the proof point at the outer edge or right. something. Um, and yeah, Trump has, you know, shows that that has exploded, right? Breitbart, et cetera, moving the, the center further and further to the right. But let's not forget that Bernie Sanders just demonstrated also that the word socialism is no longer right. a dirty word in American politics, that actually a lot of people are excited about the idea of an alternative to our capitalist system. They don't quite know what it should be, but here comes this old guy from Vermont talking about things in much, you know, much more precise and clear ways. He's not dancing around it at all. I mean, honestly, he's not really a Marxist. Right. He's not really for expropriation of, you know, uh, the capitalists. He's basically a social democrat. But even that shows that the, the goalposts have widened. We, we have a wider frame of, of open discourse, right. including some really nasty crap that 
you know, it, 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 it's hard to stomach. Right. The interesting thing is what we really saw, though, was that the Democratic Party was more capable of maintaining uh, authority over its nomination process than the Republicans were. That's true. I think that, uh, I mean, that's just because the the Clinton machine was a pretty strong political machine and they had spent a very long time building it. They deliberately did as good a job as they could to, quote, clear the field so that no one, no other major viable candidates uh, decided to get in, like Joe Biden or mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren. Um, had it been a, a more competitive primary, who knows, right? I mean, you know, it's quite likely, I think, that Clinton might have been knocked down uh, and somebody else would have gotten mm. through. Um, you know, we'll never know. I mean, I think Trump also benefited. Let's not forget, Donald Trump is a main minority president. Um, he didn't get the popular vote. And it wasn't until the very late in the Republican primaries that he was even getting a majority of the Republican primary vote. Right. Um, and the only reason that he was able to get through is that none of the other main Republican contenders was interested in a murder-suicide. Somebody had to take him on with full force. And in the process of doing so, was they, I'm sure they made the calculation that, well, if we do that, we're going to hurt ourselves, too, because none of Trump supporters will support us. Right. Right. Let someone else do that. The dirty work. And none of them ever did. I mean, Marco Rubio tried incredibly late. Yeah. Right. And at that point, he did it in a very weak way and actually hurt himself just as much. Um, so I, I think that Trump benefited from a little bit of a, a bizarre aspect of, you know, this multi-candidate primary process, like the only moment in American politics where we let many people run is inside a major party's primary, right? And we don't use instant runoff voting. We don't, you know, I mean, Trump ended up in the middle of those stupid debates because he was a celebrity and therefore just by virtue of being well known was always leading in the polls. Right. Initially, we, exactly. that's all it was. And if, if they had done something as simple as a, a two-man runoff, yeah, then all those other guys could have stayed in in the hopes, you know, that Bush or Kasich or one of those guys would have gotten second place. Exactly. And as soon as the field, if, if that field had crystallized in, into a two-way race much, much earlier, then who knows? I mean, yeah. the other, you know, you think about all the all the negative stuff that has since come out about Trump, most of which didn't come out until, you know, very late or after the yeah. election. Yeah, look, but anyway, we're stuck with him. Right. But doesn't it shake being stuck with him? Does that shake your uh, faith in, in the democratic process? I'm sorry. I, I grew up with Ronald Reagan as my first president, you know, when I was uh, 18. So what a silly question. I mean, you know... <laughs> Uh, America is an extremely flawed democracy. I've never had an illusion that we were living in some kind of perfected system. It's a struggle. I mean, you know, and and we were terrified of Reagan and he did some horrible things. And there was also a giant opposition movement that people built that blocked at least some of his warmongering mm-hmm. on, on nukes, for example, um, that forced uh, uh, the United States to start the process of, of uh, change in South Africa. I mean, people forget in 1986, Reagan has been reelected and Congress passes over his veto sanctions against South Africa. Right. Okay. And that was a response to a people's movement in this country. Right. Not college campuses. Yeah. We were doing that. So in college. We, yeah. we, we, you know, 
um, I mean, shake my faith. My what what shakes my my faith only is the people who sit on the sidelines and wring their hands and don't you know kind of say I'm going to get involved. Right. But the other then, but that anything. brings me to the other problem is when when in many of the cases where I've tried to get involved and you've actually yeah. been at some of them, mm. I'll interact with um, say I'll interact with uh, say Nira Tandon yeah. at Center for American Progress. Um, and I'd rather say names so that we can say what we actually, you know, sure. what we're free, what we're free saying about people rather than 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 dancing uh, around. Yeah, exactly. So near attendant, bless her heart, means well, hard worker, smarter than me, all that. I'm mm-hmm. good with that. When I engage with her, she is most not just most. She is solely interested in having someone like me come up with new styles of opposition research on Trump mm. so that they can come up with talking points or something as if the main thing that they can do with their millions of dollars is say bad things about Trump rather than promoting the progressive left or the Democratic Party, whatever it might be, through direct action, through mutual right. aid, through right. civic engagement. Right. So you're talking about short-termism versus long-termism mm. in part. I think a lot of the people who operate in places like the Center for American Progress see themselves as within, at best, a, a two-year time frame, right, mm-hmm. till the next election. Um, so that, that doesn't give you much time to develop big new ideas. And when you're in opposition, you don't really have any power to implement those ideas, is how they think. So most of your job is about opposing and blocking and, you know, hopefully winning the next election where maybe then you get to try and do something. Right. Um, And so, you know, and there's some logic to that, that, you know, if you're playing within the frame that says uh, the most important thing is winning elections, right? Like you and I, I think, understand that politics is certainly where a lot of power sits, but it isn't the only place where power sits. And power, with the interesting thing about power, which Eric Liu, in his new book, you have, uh, you have more power than you think, is his, uh, hmm. you are more powerful than you think, is the title of his book, points out that while power, you know, obviously seeks to concentrate itself, the interesting thing is that it's also unlimited and that you can create new power, right? Like you can organize outside of an existing power system, create new power and change the system. That's where cultural work, where developing new forms of how people do things with each other, often overwhelms the existing power. Breitbart um, is right? that. Breitbart's a good example of uh, well, I think culture is upstream of politics, and right. he created a new culture eats power uh, politics for breakfast. Right. Okay, you know, so or marriage equality, right? Like, mm-hmm. how did that change? You know, a lot of it was because culture changed first. And then a lot of people came out and said, why can't I marry my partner? Right. And, and suddenly you have all these people who are like, I actually know somebody who is being hurt by this. Why are we continuing to hurt them? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it became something that, that spread at a cultural level. And then the, the political system responded. The same thing with women's uh, enfranchisement and empowerment. I mean, obviously, yes, there are powerful people who would like to stop that. That the issue is like who loses, who thinks they lose. The reason I think marriage equality spread and took over in part because there were very few people, you know, who had that much that they were going to lose, right? Whereas, 
empowering women makes a lot of men feel like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my central dominant role. Right, it was the same as fact, empowering uh, empowering black schools yeah. makes white people, oh no, now how's my daughter going to get into Wellesley? Yeah, yeah right. So, I, you know, near, to go back to someone like Neera Tandon, I mean, the, the only thing I would say that where, you know, if I were her talking to you, I'd be like, okay, we're not succeeding in changing very many Trump voters, you know, as opposed to opposing Trump. It's like, how do you reach some portion of Trump voters like who voted for him? Right. Well, part- that's the sweet spot is supposed to be the people that voted for Obama before, but voted for Trump that's this time. Silly. And there's that's the band that they're going to go for. What about the couple million people who voted for Gary Johnson or who voted for Jill Stein instead right. of, of, of Hillary? What about the people who didn't vote because they just were they didn't feel like it meant enough? Right. Um, I mean, there are a lot of right that other sixty percent of America. <laughs> yeah, and and that you know so the, but they're going for the the bang for the buck, which is like you know the the most obvious people. Well, if they voted for Obama, maybe they're not as lost, say, as right. somebody else. But even then, I don't think we know enough about you know the motivations of of people who voted for Trump who are. Who in many cases just were like, I can't vote for Hillary, right? Who were, you know, so opposed to another dynastic establishment politician um, that they were ready to try crazy new guy. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, but but the the tension between uh political action and civic action. Yeah. And the and the the in many ways, you know, a uh, uh, mutually supporting relationship between those two activities, it, it to me is it, one of the central questions that you raised yeah. by starting Personal Democracy Forum, yeah. which is happening again in New York on June 8th and 9th. June 8th and 9th. And for anybody who listens to Team Human, this is the way that this is the, the political party of Team Human. It's not right. <laughs> it's not left. It's... Um, Engaged is yeah. really what it is. It's can you engage? Can you but this uh, year, elicit but your autonomy? I appreciate, I appreciate that, but I, I do want to make something clear. So Trump is not right or left. I mean, yeah. you're allowed no, to no, be no, against him. I'm, 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 yeah, no, I, I, first of all, more information on, on PDF, go to pdf17.com, just PDF, the number 17. This year is different. We have tried to build a cross-partisan conversation centered on the idea of the ways that tech increases participation in our putative democracy, right? So personal democracy, you once took me to task, it should be called participatory democracy. But I really do think that the the big signal change of our time is that our ability to participate personally has been enhanced. You know, we, we're, mm-hmm. we're all plugged in and connected to these amazing network devices that at least theoretically open up room. Um, for more participation, whether we make that into something that's more than just individual atomized, you know, uh, demands and something that's more collective is where a lot of the work sits. Right. And while um, I argued against the word personal, I mean, I, I as a now as a, a team human spokesperson, I mean, I see that the value in people being able to conceive of democratic participation occurring on a human scale. Right. You know, the, right. what they do individually does make a difference. Yeah, and not everybody has gotten their heads around the idea that democracy is more than just the aggregation of individual voices, right? Like, we've been taught so much that it's yeah. about voting, and your vote, your individual vote matters. 
Well, after you vote, you know, then there are results and the results may not make you completely happy. And then what do you do? Right. Like there's all the other stuff that happens the other 364 days of the year. Right. Or even if the results did make you happy, right. what do we what do you get to do? That was my whole critique of Obama. It was like, where was my invitation to be the change I was waiting for? Right. Well, he, he only wanted you to support his next campaign. Right. So. This year is different because we are in a in a very challenging moment, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, over the years as PDF has developed from 2004 till now, we've inched further into stating I think some some positions, you know, for example, the open internet is an absolute value, okay? I'm not interested really in a debate over whether we need net neutrality. All right. I mean, this is like a fundamental thing. It's like saying, you know, we're, we're not going to make space for the people who already have plenty of room to promote uh, their propaganda about or to you know, privatize the net. Yeah, or, yeah, I'm not interested. I'm really not. I, you go waste somebody's time elsewhere. This is we're going to fight to defend that because we see it as fundamental to a meaningful open democracy. Well, same as, say, environmentalism. Right. So. That core value of open democracy, it seems to me, is pushed us into more of an oppositional role this year vis-a-vis what Trump represents. And I saw this early and could not get enough people to, to understand how dangerous Trump was, because it isn't that he has positions that are right wing. I mean, it's hard to tell what his positions right. are because they change depending on who the last person was that he spoke to, but that... At core, he's undermining some some things that are fundamental to us being able to have a democracy, like the idea that the record matters. Like if you said something, that that means what you you know you said it. That's what you stand for. You don't get to be a complete chameleon who claims you said one thing or, or didn't say it, change your mind, whatever. You cannot keep doing that. That completely undermines our ability to make any decisions together. But he can get away with it. Well, no, he can't, because what is happening right now is a uprising in this country. I don't like the word resistance because I think it's it's a bit grandiose. Someday, maybe it will be a Mm -hmm. resistance. My mother was saved by the resistance in Belgium, okay? Right. Her family was saved because people actually risked their lives to protect them from the Nazis. And if they were caught, they would have been killed. That's a resistance. The thing that's happening now is an opposition or an uprising. But anyway, the the main point is that it is rooted in people who are like not just defend Planned Parenthood or defend immigrants, but who are also interested in defend the bedrock of a constitutional order where we actually operate according to a common set of facts, where the truth actually matters, where people are... You know, we, we, we do not discriminate against people because of their religion or because of their identity. Like, these are core these are core principles. I mean, I hated George W. Bush, but I respect the fact that after 9-11, he went out of his way to make clear that Islam was not the enemy. Okay? Right. I mean, the, the, the boundary line of not stigmatizing an entire religion or an entire race... Um, is the line between democratic discourse and authoritarianism and fascism, okay? And when you see authoritarianism rising, you don't go, oh, let's have a friendly, you know, let's include their voices and it's two points of view. No, 
no, I'm sorry, you, you don't make room for that at all. You say, let's get everybody together who sees what a danger this right. is um, and who are fighting to try and stop Right. It. I mean, the problem is the rhetoric that, that he's using appeals to even some you know intelligent but misguided people I know mm. who are thinking almost in libertarian terms about our kind of cultural immune system yeah. has gotten weakened and we have to understand that the that the core dna of the muslim program is to destroy us and unless we well that's nonsense it is but, but um, we've seen this before i mean you know the idea that a whole religion which has you know hundreds of millions of nonviolent participants is aimed at annihilation of the rest of us is, is I mean it's it's a complete absurdity this is what they said about the Jews right right I mean we recognize this and, and you can find the passages about killing every Amalekite or every God being mad at Saul for not killing every, every religion has warlike components and then the people who have kept the religion going have been like Let's not talk about that part. That was back when we were savages. Exactly. We, Let's not stone sorceresses to death anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but to go back to, you know, the uh, why Trump is different is it's also that we as a country have understood that we vest enormous power in our elected officials on condition that they use that power responsibly and in a way that is ab abiding by the law, not above the law. Um, and that means, for example, that they do not use their office to enrich themselves. Um, I mean, that's another core fundamental change. Uh, it, it's, you know, we've never had a president before walk in, not divest, not disclose. So we have no idea how much he's using the office to enrich his family. Right. I mean, I mean, we from, have suspicions, but we From don't. their side, they would say, well... Everybody's done it. It's just been called corruption before. No, 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 no. <laughs> Everybody who did it before was forced out of office because they did it. You know, I mean, when when Burt Lance uh, was, you know, Jimmy Carter's chief of staff and, you know, uh, William Sapphire discovered, you know, some hanky panky and self-dealing. Lance was forced to resign. Right. Seriously, th there has been a boundary that up till now meant something that was like an ethical red line that you were not allowed to cross. The only thing that is keeping, allowing Trump to do this is the cravenness of a Republican majority in Congress right now that is putting party above country and is not willing to say, this is impeachable. I mean, find a, find a reasonably ethically clean right-wing Republican Run that person for president. You get you win the White House. You get to run the country for four years, but you don't get to uh, use the office to just make your business and and your cronies more successful. Well, the fact is, we're in a situation where they do get to do that if yeah. we allow them. You see, Doug, I think we're in a in a really unusual moment, and it's not over. Okay, which we're, we're I guess we're and every listener is of, hoping to hear this. We're in the middle of a titanic struggle over whether this will be normalized or not, okay? The signs are that at one level, yeah, it's being normalized. Our media, mainstream media, is falling into covering this every day as more and more normal behavior as opposed to saying, uh, you know, by the way, it looks like Trump has some kind of mental disorder because he can't say three or four sentences in any you know normal stream right and we think doctors should be looking at that they they aren't doing that 
because they're afraid they're going to lose access because they're corporate controlled. So in many cases, they just care about the ratings. They don't really care about the content. Um, but what we still have are millions of people in motion saying no. And we've never been in a moment like this in your and my adult lifetime. Right. Um, we've had shorter moments. Occupy was a brief moment like this. Occupy was suppressed. Occupy was also unsustainable yeah. in the model that it, it had adopted. Um, but this seems to be flowing in a broader and more successful channel and has so far succeeded in blocking all his major initiatives. I mean, we're talking today as Congress, the House is supposed to be voting on, on uh, you know, bill the, the repeal and replacement of, of health care. We'll see what happens. But even that is an ongoing fight. It's not a done deal. Uh, he did not come in as a dictator. So the media system is giving us the impression of him being more powerful than he is. And the street system, which is, you know, all the public showing up and making a lot of noise and adapting and figuring out strategies to, to, you know, to block and to stop is the counterforce. And it's not done. My biggest worry right now, and we're going to have a lot of the, a lot of the people who are the emerging new leaders, like the people from Indivisible and the Women's March and Grab Your Wallet and, and Resistance Manual will be speaking at PDF mm. this year. But we're also going to have some of the veterans of, of progressive organizing, like the head of Color, Color of Change, for example, Rashad Robinson, because the, the strategic, like, okay, how do we strategically think this is the biggest challenge that people mm. have is, okay, Indivisible gave us a tactic, flood town halls, flood the phone lines. That tactic is working up to a point, but at a certain point, it begins to lose its efficacy because people in Congress go, oh, okay, that's just the phone lines are erupting again, but we can safely ignore it until you figure out another tactic. Mm -hmm. The next tactic might be, okay, let's make it radioactive to be a big donor to any member of Congress who voted to repeal health care. Okay. The donors are way more vulnerable than the members of Congress because they operate in the shadows. And we've never had the ability to pressure those people because it takes a huge amount of, of effort to mobilize enough people to do that. But suddenly we're living in a moment where there are more people looking for meaningful things to do than there are people giving them meaningful things to do, right? The organizations, uh -huh. the old organizations like Planned Parenthood, ACLU, et cetera, are trying to figure out how do we absorb not just the money, we've been set up to absorb money for a long time. That's been their operating right. model. Um, that their assumption has been you can't get people to do very much. They have busy lives. You know, when we ask them for help, they, they tell us to go away, uh -huh. but we can extract a little money out of them. Now the opposite thing is going on, which is people are looking for meaningful ways to resist. Right. And we need to evolve more successful tactics. Right. Because they, I mean, one, they don't have money to spend, but they do have hours. They're unemployed. But it's the best <laughs> you know? Or they finally have realized that the time that they used to devote to the normal pursuits of life and happiness had been disrupted by a threat well, so and big. And it feels meaningless. It's like I, even even my kid can't go to the mall or to a movie knowing 
that this is going on yeah. while she's sitting there. Yeah, well, you, you have to recharge your batteries. Let's not forget. Yeah, but but, but just to engage in sure. consumer Good. culture welcome, welcome perpetuates to, the, the yes, nightmare. Yes, and and to some degree, this is also about the empire beginning to weaken. You know, the the people who live in the central city don't feel the pain. Uh, you know, well, that, it's like that, Hunger Games. It, to some to some extent. <laughs> That, that, you know, for a long time I thought Americans were insulated. You know, uh, I have family in Israel, so I would go visit them periodically. And I was always amazed at how closely they followed the news. Like consuming several newspapers and, and tuning into the news every night and hourly news bulletins. Like, my God, how do you pay attention so much? And they'd say, look, we live in a part of the world where, you know, Stuff can happen that can radically affect <laughs> right. your life really fast. A bomb can drop I gotta somewhere. I got to pay attention. Yeah. Um, and, you know, high levels of voting, high levels of political engagement as a result. We've lived for a long time where, and our society is structured so that the people who are hurt internally are hidden, right? So we have large swaths of America where people are hurting or being oppressed, but very rarely do you see their stories except, for example, when... A hurricane hits New Orleans or something. Right. right? Or you read in these times or something. Yeah. You, you, you have to go searching for that. Yeah. But now this has hit, I think, millions of middle class people who previously were complacent, um, especially older women who happen to have a lot of spare time, which is why we're seeing them leading so many of these new groups. Right. And it's capacity that we didn't have before. And the other thing is, is the Internet, which has made it easier for people to find each other, right? That, that old saying, find the others, right? Well, they're all finding each other. We're all finding each other and creating new things and swarming around meaningful tactics. So as some, you know, to give you an example, tax march. Who would have thought that liberals would, you know, do a giant a series of, of citywide marches on, on tax day? That was... That was the Tea Party's day, right? Right. Um, what they were doing the tax day was you know about getting came... Trump's tax returns. Well, right. But the interesting thing was two months before tax day, it didn't exist. Um, it was, a, you know, like a, com- a couple of comedians on Twitter who, who just said things like, uh, after the women's march, our next march is tax day when we're going to demand his tax returns. And it's not that anybody at, you know, Progressive Central, which doesn't exist, but to the degree that you know, any of the existing tables of, of yep. you know, professional organizations, none of them said, yeah, we should do this. And, you know, no, it does. Exactly. And <laughs> the same with uh, uh, Nathan Schneider's buy Twitter right. thing. These he just things, says, wouldn't it be cool if we bought Twitter and turned it into a platform co-op? Right, and all of a sudden, right. it's, it's a national story. It, it's happening because it's resonating with enough people. Right. And that the, the cost of organizing has fallen so low that at least the bare bones of getting something going have become easier. There's still a lot of really yeah. hard work to pull off a march. And I, I do want to, you know, for anybody uh, who isn't aware, you know, I mean, serious hard work was done by existing organizations like the Working Families Party or Move On to make sure that those tax marches didn't fizzle. Like once you throw right. in to do a march, you damn well better be sure. Like the people who are like, let's have a national strike three weeks after the uh, Women's March. Yeah. I'm glad no one remembers that because it was a stupid idea. Same thing with, by the way, the, the people who were all like, we're going to get the electors to, to uh, flip their votes. Boy, was that a dumb idea. There was no way in the world that we were going to get enough 
uh, disloyal electors right. to not put Trump in. And yet millions of people had their hopes raised. You notice, by the way, right. very few seasoned uh, uh, political organizers got themselves involved in that thing. It was a bunch of freelance. But hey, you never know what's going to work. The people who started the Women's March didn't know what they were doing either. Luckily, a bunch of veteran women's organizers, a more intersectional group, got involved, reconfigured, reframed uh, what the Women's Marches were about and, and, you know, giant success. Right. So there's still a lot of behind the scenes stuff that has to happen that, you know, the Internet isn't necessarily helping it. In some ways, it may be making it harder because we're in a noisier, noisier environment uh, with many voices, you know, trying to get our attention and competing for resources, too. But I'll take this over the alternative, which is eight years of Obama when nobody was interested in building up grassroots power, right? right? Where people worked in a wilderness for the most part because, hey, we elected uh, African-American president, so everything must be great now. And he also dropped the ball in not building up a base. He was of, a community organizer oh, and he didn't organize BS. communities. He, you know, he, he was a transactional politician posing as a transformational one. I wrote a piece in the New Republic about this uh, in February. There was an idea to continue the movement that Obama used, built to get himself elected. Right. You know, a few weeks after he was elected, they surveyed his 13 million email list. Half a million people responded. Very strong response rate of people saying, yeah, I want to still be involved to help ensure that uh, uh, the president's agenda gets enacted. 50,000 people said they wanted to run for local office as part of continuing that. 50,000 people. Imagine if Obama, instead of just worrying about his political agenda, which, believe me, he had a lot to work on. He had to save the economy. Yeah. You know, he had to protect the bankers. Stupid. Yeah. But that, that was who he was. Um, and he wanted to reform health care and do a couple of other things. But they neglected the fact that there were all these newly activated people who had learned something about their own power to organize. They elected a black man president. Huge transformational change in our history. And they were ready to do more and they were abandoned. Right. And now we're That's all where like, they started wow, occupying. Wow, yeah. you know, Emily's list has 15,000 people raising their hand saying they want to run and run for something has 9,000 people who say they want to run and vote for vote run lead has six that cool. These are great numbers. 50,000 wanted to do it 8 years ago and a team of people around Barack Obama dropped the ball and abandoned those people. Oh, and went off to get rich by the way, you know, right. going to run help run companies like Uber. So right. remember, not everybody who runs um, inside the Democratic Party or the consultants who are the masterminds of their campaigns is actually our ally. No, I don't. I meet these people and they all want to make a lot of money off this. Oh, you know, it's like exactly. So what, what you're saying, though, is that more people were willing to come out when things were good than are willing to do it even now when things are bad. Well, you know, that there was a no, positive there's a difference. Back then there was, first of all, we were getting rid of Bush because he was so bad. Obama positioned himself in part just on that Iraq thing, right? right? Remember, Hillary was the dominant candidate in 2008 and he had to supplant her. Um, and a big reason why he was successful is because at least he had the right position on Iraq, which 
many grassroots Democrats just couldn't stomach Hillary for. But there were a lot of people who were mobilized. You build a big national campaign, you move a lot of people into action. Yeah, you're going to build up this residue of people who want to do more. Um, I would say the number of people who want to run for office now is an awesome thing, but it's also happening without any national single like uh, 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 instigator for it. It's happening in a, in a very organic way, which is which is fabulous. I think a lot of people, you know, the lasting change, assuming we're alive, um, you know, <laughs> two or four years from now, and I, I kid only slightly, um, is that we're going to see a real revival of participation in many places that used to be democratic wastelands. But the threat, I mean, the if we are alive threat, <laughs> is actually real. I mean, a lot of uh, sure. a lot of listeners, and I myself often feel that, okay, they elected Trump, mm. and now we're going to be all busy kind of fighting and dealing with that. Meanwhile, desperately needed emission standards are being lowered, yeah. fracking's going to start, Paris... You know, uh, uh, yeah, people court. worry. Uh, they always worry about those things, and they're not going away. I agree, but we're adaptive, you know, humans, right? Um, this is team human, after all. Look, you deal with the crisis right in front of us, and instead of wringing your hands and saying all is lost, um, you know, we still want to save as many as we can save. Is is what I would say. What I worry about, I don't worry about uh, the the long range. You know, what happens as the climate changes. Uh, yes, I do worry about it, but I, I'm like, right now, deal with the immediate danger in front of us. The thing I most worry about now is will we be resilient enough if there is some kind of terrorist attack, real or or ginned up, or Trump gets us into a war with North Korea or something like that, and they use that as a pretext to crack down on dissent here. There is a saying, you know, a rat is most dangerous when you corner him. And to the right. degree that Trump is weakened and seeing a the Democratic checks and balances kind of keep him from doing a lot of the things that he thought he it would be easy to do, travel ban and so on. So do they go, OK, fine, we're ruthless. Let's make a new reality. Um, let's take advantage of people's fears and uh, let's, you know, push through legislation that will make public assemblies uh, a lot harder or that will make it easier to crack down on anybody who's ever given money to any group that supports the rights of Muslims, for example. Right. You know, I could see them doing those kinds of things. Well, and, and certainly, you know, I mean, and, and Trump is at his most dangerous and cunning, yes, when he's cornered like a like a, well, an we animal. Don't we don't really know if he's cunning. Well, he feels he he's at least he's most he's, explo he he's got, most explosive yeah. when he's in trouble. So yeah. let's say, God forbid, the uh, Senate committee finds terrible stuff mm -hmm. about him and Russia and money and yeah. and Putin. God knows what he'll do to prevent that from sticking. You know, whenever a bad thing surfaces, he yeah. does an even worse thing in order to uh, yeah. Well, distract. what we don't know yet, Doug, is is. Uh, so far, the courts have, uh, you know, which who have no armies, um, have issued rulings, and he's abiding by those rulings. There are rogue, clearly rogue elements inside the border police and you know ICE, who have who feel licensed now by his rhetoric, 
to go beyond what the law allows in terms of rounding up people um, who are here, you know, for example, dreamers who are here, um, or, you know, using extreme discretion at the border um, in ways that, that I think offend a lot of us. But so far, you know, the big worry I had was like, okay, these judges are uh, blocking his travel ban. Uh, what if uh, the police forces ignore the court rulings? Right. right. Like our whole system of, you know, uh, three-part government checks and balances um, is, is predicated on the assumption that the people with the guns will listen to the, the, the lawyers and the lawmakers. Uh, those people don't have any guns. They just have words um, and public opinion. Right. So that's the, the, the sole place, you know, and, and that's where I, I like to remind people, don't forget, we live in a federal system. Right. So at the end of the day, when people were protesting at JFK and some of the cops were getting surly and it looked like they were about to start cracking heads and they weren't letting people get off uh, uh, the shuttle train to join the protest, Governor Cuomo called and said, told the police to let people in, right? So they listened to Cuomo, who, you know, in many ways, uh, I'm profound problems with him. Right. But he's chosen to position himself on the side of defending immigrants, right? right? And, and opposing Trump. He's doing it because he's a political opportunist, but he sees where his public is. Um, so, but when, someone, when some chief think, of police has to know the rules enough to know, okay, what is the chain of command? Yeah, exactly. If but he's we telling me that and a senator system. is telling me something else, what do I do? Right. We have a federal system right. and that ultimately means that state police respond to the governor, not to, you know, this is why when they say, you know, uh, we're going to cut off funding to cities that are trying to be sanctuary cities. The courts keep saying, no, you can't do that because the federal, it, it actually, if the, the Cities have a tremendous amount of autonomy and you cannot, you know, the, the, we did not design the system to be run uh, like a dictatorship mm-hmm. out of, you know, from Washington. It's designed to be federal, which means there are some parts of the U.S. that can be like police states and there are others that can be very progressive and humane. Starting point is like, remember where you live and work on that too, right? Like here in New York, where we live, we have an opportunity to finally turn New York blue, right? In theory it is, but we have a governor who, uh, you know, props up a renegade faction of Democrats who caucus with the Republicans in the state Senate and keep the state Senate controlled by Republicans, even though Democrats are a numerical majority. Um, That's starting to break down because suddenly a lot of people are like, wait a second, this isn't okay. And they're putting a lot of pressure on their elected officials all the way up to Cuomo to start behaving like actual Democrats and throw these IDC people, the Independent Democratic Caucus people, out um, and primary them. Uh, a year ago, those people thought they were political geniuses because they were getting you know, extra perks and bigger budgets and fancier committee assignments because they were playing footsie with the Republicans and Governor Cuomo thought it was all great. But now it's become politically less feasible to do that. That's because of the shift in public opinion and public engagement. So it's hard to keep sustaining that. But I think a lot of people are awake now in a way that they weren't before. They understand the stakes. They understand the risks. um, And they're going to stay active. And I mean, in one great way, obviously, to to 
get inspired and to, and uh, uh, instrumentalized, mm. you know, is either to attend PDF, mm. PDF17.com. That's it. Or, and, and, or to, and I don't mean to, to hurt your ticket sales, or to watch <laughs> PDF17.com because well, you I- guys do... Live stream the, the live thing. Live stream is one way to see the main hall talks, but I, you know, we have. But if you live in Minnesota have, and don't have four hundred dollars sure, to fly sure. here, you can see. Uh, you'll get the. You'll you get can the, turn it on. I I didn't. I spent the whole because I could make one day last yeah. year, not the other. I ended up spending the whole day watching yeah. on my thing. You yeah. know, get food, go back on my yeah. laptop. I right. watched the whole day. I'm sitting there, chatting I'm with glad. other people, and it was just. Um, Something about last year's, because you curate it, uh, it had a flow to it. It yeah, had a... Um, yeah, yeah, I it's hope like, I can pull that off. No, but it's like watching a, a two-day feature film about what are the problems, what can we do about them, mm-hmm. how is technology coming to the answer, how are people coming to the answer, you know, what are the right. challenges in that, Right. what do we want to fight about, right. and how are we going to come away from this a more autonomous body politic you got it that's what we try for um the only thing you miss if you're not there which i do think is a very high value is the other people yeah um and you know we have uh 28 breakout sessions over two days so you can go deep on the topics you really care about whether it's organizing or learning the skills that you need or wrestling with some big hard challenges or Understanding where civic tech is still making yeah. a difference, or getting time. immediately plugged yeah. in. Right. So you're there. You you know say uh, Ben from Lumio maybe yeah. is there, yeah. and you talk to him right after his That's talk right. or his That's panel, and he's like, "Oh well, here's this. You want to work with us? You want to work right. for us? You want right. a job? You know?" And all of a sudden, it's it, it, it is it is very generative for that. Though I would say, uh, you know, as we finish up here, that the the reason we started Civic Hall. Is because we saw what happened. And Civic Hall is the is the live sort of the yeah. the the meat space, uh, uh, always there location. It's like right. a co working space for civically engaged right. people. Except we don't say co working because co working has become too much about your own thing, and right. we want, it's a collaborative community space. We have people who are members there who you know a, a lot of this is born out of the the community that is centered on PDF every year. But the intensity level is a little lower right. uh, because you cannot operate at that high level of intensity that you get at a big conference. But what you do have is the serendipitous connections, the, the, the finding the others effect. Right. Um, right. It's not a place to do parallel play. In it, other it, words, yeah, it's a no, place to I, play with others. It, we, that's yeah. the goal is, is to help others who are doing amazing work, help people fill in each other's needs, you know, you know something about design. I know something about leadership development. Let's play. Right. Um, and the uh, having a space where that happens, where the value, the core value is you've got to be committed to improving the public good. That's what makes it civic. And, you know, many of our people are using tech in innovative ways or they're just innovative in the way they work and the way they think. And so that's the, the continuation year round. But the... People, we have to, it all comes back to people. You know, it's great to connect with you face to face. It is way more fun to see you than um, just to be like reading you. I enjoy <laughs> reading you. And that, I think we, we, we shouldn't forget the value of place. Um, well, it's it, the only, it's, it's again, that's at human scale. This is right. team human. Humans right. can do that. You know, com- companies can be online. 
right. algorithms can be online. Brands exist out there in the ether, but yeah, people when you are have only people working space. together, it's yeah. what I keep saying. It's conspiracy. Right. Conspiracy just means people breathing together. That's right. And once you do that, you you re- it really doesn't feel so bad anymore. You realize, oh, there's others here. Yeah, exactly. But but to get that that true hit of others and and that concentrated one. Um, come for two days to New York on uh, on June. Yes, tickets are still on sale. PDF seventeen. Buy them. PDF seventeen dot com. Buy them online because if you try and buy at the door, you'll you'll be upset at the, the price increase. Um, we do sell them at the door too, though. And are but, there are there ways for people to apply for? Yes, people working? can volunteer. If if you want to volunteer, uh, I think it's volunteer at personaldemocracy dot com, and uh, we we happy to exchange. Uh, a little labor for for a ticket to attend. So right, and the great way. thing about volunteering is, if you want to meet the person who's on that panel, then be the person who escorts them from the green room to the panel, <laughs> and at least you get that. Oh, that, you sure do. No, you know, I, it's it, an amazing thing. I mean, yes. to be to and you know, yes, come buy a ticket and pay, but volunteering. I mean, it just jump starts right. civic engagement. It sure does. It sure does. Well, Doug, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for, for what you've been doing all these all these years now. I feel so old to have even just known you this long. We're the same age. Stop. I know, but you're just as old. <laughs> but uh, no, old is good. But uh, yeah. but thanks so much for being on Team Human and building Team Human in, in the remarkable ways that you do. Thanks. There is no I in Team Human, right? <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for participating on Team Human. Tell the others forward to your friends it's time we do this thing for real we're entirely listener supported you can find out about how to get involved more about our guests and ways to support the show at teamhuman.fm team human our last best hope for peeps Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.